Kidal Mali, Tinari Wen, performing live in Paris in 2014. Two years before this concert, this pioneering Tuareg rock band won their first Grammy Award, a huge honor. But at that very moment, in their homeland in the north of Mali, a rebellion that these musicians had long dreamed of was being overtaken by Islamic jihadists. The insurgents would declare Sharia law and ban music like Tinariwens. Ironic? Bittersweet? Confusing? Tragic? Well, hang on, there's more. Hello, Georges Collinet with you on Afropop Worldwide from PRI, Public Radio International. This hip deep edition, the Tuareg predicament in Mali. Today, we take a musical tour through the history and aftermath of Mali's 2012 crisis. The nomadic Tuareg are one of several ethnic groups who inhabit the north of Mali. But the events of 2012 were sparked by a Tuareg militia, the MPLA, that's the popular movement for the liberation of Azawad. What is Azawad? Basically, Mali looks like a boat with a sail, slightly tipped over. And if you draw a line where the sail starts, everything north of that is Azawad. Author and journalist Andy Morgan. Andy managed the band Tinariwen during their international rise in the early 2000s. Before we get to the story, let's hear more from Tinariwen. This song, Azawad. with Azawad, kicking off hip deep in Mali, the Tuareg predicament. Georges Collinet with you on Afropop Worldwide. Major support for Afropop Worldwide comes from the National Endowment for the Humanities and the National Endowment for the Arts. <laughs> My name is Professor Susan Rasmussen, and I teach anthropology at the University of Houston. And for, oh, approximately 30 years, I've been conducting field research among both rural and urban Tuareg communities of Niger and Mali, and more briefly, among African immigrants in France. There's a lot of mythology and misinformation surrounding the Tuareg, these mysterious blue turban nomads of the Sahara Desert. The term Tuareg is actually a gloss for a number of different groups, although they all are closely related. The Tuareg sometimes call themselves Keltimashek after their language, which is in a family of languages called Berber, or the local term Amazir. Many of them belong to Berber peoples who originally inhabited North Africa. The Tuareg themselves 
tend to fall into very large regional confederations and smaller clans and descent groups, predominantly in the northern areas of Niger and Mali, the southern area of Algeria, southern Libya, and parts of Burkina Faso. For centuries, the Tuareg have herded livestock and worked the camel caravans that moved goods across the vast Sahara Desert. I like to think of it as an ocean with ports. Rather than really remote, it's been a vibrant crossroads of trading, religious scholarship, culture, the arts. One thing that unites all the literally hundreds of Tuareg confederations is that common language, Tamashek. Modern leaders are tending to emphasize that. For example, they urge their audiences in speeches, in songs, in poetry, you know, we're all under the same tent, Ehanin, which means one tent. We're hearing the Malian Tuareg group, Taftit, founded and led by Fadimata Walet Umar, a.k.a. Disco. Je suis jamais d'accord pour la séparation. Jamais. Moi, j'aime beaucoup le Mali. Je veux un Mali uni. Fadimata is talking about Azawad. In early 2012, the victorious rebels declared Azawad an independent state. Fadimata says, I never supported the separation. I love Mali. But I want a united Mali with equal rights for all. Well, there's a range of opinions about how the north of Mali should be governed, even among the Tuareg. Historian Gregory Mann says that's no surprise. The idea of the Tuareg in Mali is a somewhat inaccurate and misleading one because this is a very diverse category of people. You could think of people who are government ministers, you could think of people who are you know, leading officers in the Malian military, you could think of people who are ferocious opponents of the Malian state, and they're all Tuareg. While we are on politics, it's worth noting that when the Malian state was formed in the early 1960s, it got rid of local chiefs throughout the country, except in the north. Everywhere else, that group of chiefs is disbanded. Those chiefs are removed from their functions. In the north, that doesn't happen. But the government chooses who will be the chief. Governing in northern Mali has always been beyond the real capacity of Bamako to do directly. It's always been done via these distinct elite families of the Tuareg. And so a nation state that is a republic everywhere else, in which citizens are equal, is not one in northern Mali and never has been. So that's a little historical wrinkle that actually matters in the present when there are disputes over the role of this kind of political aristocracy or these people who are considered to be commoners or these people who are considered to be of slave descent, all of whom are within the broad category of the Tuareg. Susan Rasmussen notes that the legacy of slavery in the Sahara is not limited to the Tuareg. And it does not map to skin color, something often confused in popular media with misleading references to white Tuareg and black Tuareg. These Sahelian and Saharan societies are traditionally ranked. All of them had slavery at one time or another. Sometimes the impression given in the popular literature and press is that the Tuareg were the only ones who had the slaves, and that's simply not true. The Hausa people in Niger had slaves, as did the Songhai, 
Bambra, I mean, these were ranked, complex societies of occupational specialists, and all of these groups were ultimately dependent upon each other. In Tuareg society, the lowest rank belonged to a subgroup known in Mali as the Bella. Now, slavery has long been illegal in Mali and Niger, but people still refer to Bella as former slaves. The Bella and the Buzu, as they're called in Niger, the original term in Tamashek was a clan, meaning those who were owned, and they're no longer owned. Today, they must be paid for their work. Now, some of them in the countryside do tend to still do more menial jobs, but they are paid for them. The legacy of subordination has actually provided advantages for some of the Bella. When the French introduced nomadic boarding schools, they established certain quotas for school registration. And at first, the aristocratic Tuareg tended to shun the schools because they viewed them as a threat to their culture. They also suspected that the schools were magnets for controlling the nomads. Therefore, they often sent the children of their tributaries and their subordinates to school instead. Many persons of more servile social background, as a result, became more exposed to secular modern education. And these days, they're well represented in some of the jobs and the new infrastructures. with a song about a troubled marriage. Well, so many factors have challenged traditional Tuareg society. Colonialism, the coming of the Malian state, drought, division, conflict, and migration. Many Tuareg men have become impoverished, and some families are trying to marry their daughters to more prosperous suitors. And some of the more prosperous suitors tend to come either from a different social background or even perhaps a different ethnic background. Some of the women are married to Arabs. Some of them are married, you know, in Mali to Bambara. Intermarriage has connected Tuareg communities more and more to the rest of Mali. Nous sommes Timbuktu-born singer Haira Arbi, who is not Tuareg, says, we are one. Tu vas trouver un Tuareg qui est marié à une femme Dogon. Il a des enfants avec eux. Haira says, you might find a Tuareg man married to a Dogon woman, and they have children. But if there is a fight between the Tuareg and the Dogon, what will become of those children? Haira blames the interference of foreigners, going back to colonial time for the loose talk that drives ethnic divisions in Mali. She warned about this in her 2010 song, Chini Chini, or Gossip. Mama 
great Haira army of Timbuktu. The Tuareg and their neighbors converted to Islam between the 8th and 12th centuries. For a long time, the Tuareg resisted, often taking refuge in the inaccessible mountains of Niger, Morocco, and Mali. Ironically, that's where today's Islamic militants also hide. Islam came with aspects of Arab culture that were never a good fit with Tuareg ways. For instance, Tuareg women have always enjoyed high social prestige. Well, they still do. Most Tuareg women are not secluded. They can visit and travel freely. They can represent themselves legally. They have a right to initiate divorce. They also inherit, own, and manage their own property, which has traditionally included livestock, date palms, a few women-owned houses. Now, central here is the nuptial tent. The woman in rural, semi-nomadic and nomadic camps owns her tent. It's brought to her marriage as a dowry, and in fact, she can eject the husband from it upon a quarrel or upon divorce. Fadimata of Taptik says that today Tuareg women are leading the fight against fundamentalism. In Kidal, where the Islamists remain strong, women are refusing to obey. Fadimata says women have always been in charge of Tuareg domestic life, and nothing is going to change that. Women are also the only ones to play the Tuareg Tinde drum, like this. performing a Tinde song live at the 2012 festival in the desert in Timbuktu, just days before the rebellion began. The Tinde is the harpy of Tuareg music, basically. Andy Morgan says that modern Tuareg songs connected with rebellion encourage men to fight to protect their women. Like this Tinariwen classic, Chet Bogasa, The Women of Bogasa. Here's a more recent example of a Tuareg song celebrating women. The young Tuareg band Tamikrest put out a CD in 2013 called Chatma, or Sisters. This song says, we will march as long as women have not recovered their freedom on the earth. We will march in Azawad.
singing Solidarity with Tuareg Women on our hip deep focus on the Tuareg predicament in Mali. Afropop listeners likely remember the festival in the desert, which we've reported on since it began in the year 2000. This legendary festival became possible because after years of on and off Tuareg rebellions, there was finally a peace deal. It came after a new uprising in the early 1990s. Here's Andy Morgan. The actual rebellion of the early 1990s was only six months long. It ended in a sort of ceasefire, really, called the Tamanrasa Accords. And then they negotiated the National Pact, which is the basis on which the next decade's worth of promises were founded. And that was signed in 1992. Mohamed Hamalek, a Tuareg native of Timbuktu, says the festivals in the desert were a highlight of his life. We have more than 10,000 people who come in just for this festival, musicians from everywhere around the world. For me, it was a big experience, because before that, I never see white people who are playing music. It's my first time in my life see them. But few of the revelers at the festivals in the desert understood how fragile that peace really was. The problem is the will to actually make peace in the north was much weaker in Bamako than it should have been. This national pact, if it had been respected, history would have been very different because in fact, the next conflict, which broke out in 2006, a lot of the demands were pretty much word for word the demands that had been made and supposedly honored in the national pact. Promises to build roads, schools, hospitals, and to allow the North a level of self-government were not kept. Part of the problem was that the Malian government changed from a military dictatorship to a democracy in the early 90s. The people who made those promises were not the ones who had to fulfill them. What money there was mostly wound up in the hands of corrupt middlemen, and the result was disaster. Northern Mali degenerated into ethnic war, basically, between the Songhoi and the Tamashek, between different Tamashek factions, between the Arabs and the Tamashek, and it became a nightmarishly complex, chaotic situation of small groups fighting each other. Part of the peace agreement involved the Malian army withdrawing from the north. Already an impossible region to secure, the desert became a ripe opportunity for highly organized drug traffickers. It's a very strange thing that's happened in the Sahel over the last decade or more, and especially in Mali where it's been most acute. A country that doesn't produce drugs, doesn't really consume very many drugs, has become this major transshipment point in the international trade of illicit drugs towards European markets. Latin American cocaine, Moroccan hashish that passes through Mali to go to Europe, but also to go to Israel and other places where there are you know, markets and money to be made. Gregory Mann says high-ranking government officials were complicit in drug trafficking. For many, this was merely an extension of the old caravans of the Sahara, Mohamed Hamalek. People didn't smuggle in this area for more than 20, 25 years. We meet them on the way, uh, when I'm going to my village, we see them, they come over to the wells, take waters. At that time, there was nice people. Even they meet you, they give you some food or support or some money. That was nice and we don't have any problems with them. On the edge of the Sahara Desert, 
drug is not our culture. We are too poor to consume drugs. There is no customer on the edge of the Sahara Desert, so the desert is just used as a password to cross, to pass the drugs. That's El Hajj Jitay, a native of Timbuktu. Later on, people like Mohammed and Jitay would understand that the drug smugglers were connected with militant Islamists from outside of Mali. They were preparing to take over the north, just waiting for their chance. Well, the situation Fadimata of Tartit says life did improve for the Tuareg after the National Pact. They were being integrated into the National Army, and there was a feeling of hope. Then all of a sudden, paf! Everything we had built in 18 years returned to zero. There's a debate as to whether Azawad, the independent state declared by the rebels in early 2012, was to be the domain of the Tuareg or for all the people of the north, Songhai, Fulani, Dogon, Bozo. This whole region was the empire of the Songhai during most of the 15th and 16th centuries, a memory preserved by great Songhai musicians like Samba Touré, a protégé of the late Ali Farka Touré. Time to meet a champion of Tuareg culture, Mohamed Ak Osad. Born in Gao in 1956, he came to the Malian capital Bamako at the age of 18 and has lived in the south ever since. In 2008, he formed the Tumast Cooperative in Bamako, a center for writers, musicians and artisans to preserve and nurture the cultures of the north, especially Tuareg culture. Mohamed has strong feelings about the question of Azawad. Mohamed insists that Azawad is the land of the nomads, be they Tuareg, Arab, Fulani. It's a geographic area, and nobody should say it belongs to the Tuareg. It belongs to all the people who live there. La rébellion du Mali, c'est pas contre une ethnie, c'est pas contre une personne. The Malian rebellion was not against an ethnic group or a person, not against the Songhai, Bambara, Senufo. It was against the system, the governmental system from independence right up to today. Hara Arbi agrees. Azawad, Mali, it's the same thing to me. Here's Susan Rasmussen. The so-called rebels who established independent Azawad did not find any support, even though they called on all Azawadis to come home. They didn't notably use the term Tuareg, they used the term Azawadi. This wasn't some kind of racist of apartheid state. They wanted all Azawadis to come home. They promised to try to practice a democratic system. They called on all other armed groups to leave the area. Of course, they didn't obey, as we know. Indeed, they did not. Well-armed and well-funded, in part from the drug trade, jihadist forces soon mastered the game, and a hellish eight months of occupation ensued in the Malian North. Coming up, the story of Tuareg guitar music, the poetry of rebellion and reconciliation, and much more, as we continue with the Tuareg predicament in Mali. 
You can read our interviews with Susan Rasmussen and Andy Morgan on afropop.org and find much more about music and history in the north of Mali. I'm Georges Collinet, and you're listening to Afropop Worldwide from PRI, Public Radio International. In 1990s and early 2000s, relations between the Songhai and the Tuareg deteriorated badly. But despite the tension and violence of that time, there's a deep symbiotic connection between the sedentary farmers of the riverbanks and the wandering nomads of the desert. Andy Morgan says music reflects this. Songhai musicians and Tuareg musicians have had relationship for quite a long time. The, the thing that's a symbol of that is Takamba music from Gao. Takamba music is just the absolute heartbeat of Gao. It's Songhai Tuareg music played together and in a way a symbol of that symbiotic relationship which was very much real. Takamba music from Gao Mali, performed on the Tehadant lute and calabash percussion by the group Super Ons. Our colleague Horst Timmers in the Netherlands recorded this track for the first of two CDs he's released by Super Ons. Raw and rocking stuff, I tell you. And you should see Takamba dancing, man. Beautiful, sensuous, with all the action in the shoulders, arms and hands. and poetry have always been central to Tuareg life. But in the past, particular styles and instruments were associated with each of the social classes. In the 1980s, a new kind of music emerged, the style called the Ishumar. From the start, it centered around the guitar. Susan Rasmussen. The guitar appealed to them because it was an instrument anybody could play. It was from outside Tuareg society. and. They used it as a symbol of equality to draw all the diverse people in Tuareg communities together. In other words, the guitar was not associated with the old pre-colonial differences in status. Completely. It's a very, very good point. Because before, in traditional society, you couldn't just start playing music. You couldn't just be a musician. 
in the southern societies, you have a kind of griot-type figure. He's not really a griot. Those are the ones who play the Teherdent, you know. But again, it's all tied up with the whole artisan caste in Tuareg society. In the north, where there's less contact with river people, music was a women's activity, really. Tunde drum, imzad. Imzad, that's the traditional one-string fiddle we are hearing now. The men would recite poetry, play the shepherd's flute, and that's about it. And so in traditional society, every instrument came with this baggage, the social baggage. You had to be this, you had to be that, you had to sing this repertoire, you know. The guitar was the unburdened instrument. It was free, and you could just pick it up and sing. song to a Tuareg freedom fighter in Niger. But how did this new Tuareg guitar music get the name Ishumar? Ishumar is the Tamashekization of a French word, which is chômeur. Chômeur means unemployed. Tuareg youth left the northeast of Mali in the late 60s and 1970s and 1980s to find their fortune to escape hopelessness, really. When they were hanging out in X or Y Algerian town or Libyan town, they would be like a bunch of clandestinos. They were undesirables, ragged, young, angry, dangerous. And they would hang out on the edges of towns and sleep under trees or in dried riverbeds. And often the police would come out and check up on them. And they would go, hey, you, chômeur, unemployed, you know, good for nothing. <laughs> and they changed it into a badge of pride, which I love. It's like punk. You punk. Punk. Great, we're punks. They sort of started calling themselves Ishuma. By the late 1970s, these young guys, often playing homemade guitar-like instruments, started listening to Santana in dire straits, along with North African and Sudanese popular music, and they began writing songs. Andy Morgan says the poetry in their songs harked back at least a hundred years to a tradition of poems about misery and exile. Asuf. Asuf is the most important word in Tuareg poetry. A-double-S-O-U-F. Asuf is the pain that is not physical. It's the pain in the heart. It's nostalgia. It's loss. 
its grief, the coldness of a camp that used to be inhabited, but there's no one there anymore. If you look at the lyrics of Tenari Wen or the lyrics of Tammy Crest, Asuf is there everywhere. with Asuf. Now, history tells us that the same exiled communities that produced Ishumar music also produced the rebels of 2012. The spark was the fall of Muammar Gaddafi in Libya. Gaddafi had employed many exiled Tuareg in his military, so when his government fell, they took their weapons and headed home. Basically, you had all these Malian Tuareg returning from Libya. Some of them had been living there since the 1980s. They came back with a certain amount of weaponry. And before doing anything, they kind of sat down and talked and planned what they were going to do. And one of the big themes was that this rebellion should be a rebellion of all the people of Northern Mali. The problem is that that ideal never really became a reality on the ground. was a Tuareg rebellion. You know, I mean, I think the MNLA are disingenuous when they say, no, 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 we're a coalition. We're fighting for all the people of Azawad. I mean, in a sense, they are. Bless my Tuareg friends. They feel that it's their destiny to fight the cause of other people who are too, how do you say, unwarrior-like to fight. Fadimata of Tartit says it's true there was a rebellion led by the Tuareg, but that doesn't mean that all the Tuaregs are rebels. Incidentally, this is the third time in her life that Fadimata has been driven into exile by violence and rebellion, 1992, 2006, and now 2012. This population also doesn't understand what happens to us. They don't understand that in the desert, you can hear the emotion in Fadimata's voice. She's expressing a common feeling among people in northern Mali that the population concentrated in the south has never understood their problems. In the desert, she says, there is nothing. Tuareg men were forced to go to Libya to find work. The problem is not ethnic. It's economic. It's about 18 years of broken promises by the Malian government. Many would say the cause of this rebellion goes back further than that. Here's Abdallah Alouseni of Tinariwen speaking with Afropop during the occupation of Northern Mali in 2012. 
Pour nous, ce n'est pas une surprise. Depuis l'arrivée des occupations françaises, nous, on n'a pas accepté que les Français nous commandent dans le territoire du Nord. Abdallah says the resurgence of rebellion in 2012 was not a surprise. The people of northern Mali never accepted French occupation in the early 20th century, and when Mali inherited the North at independence, they did not accept that either. Hence, the 1963 rebellion. Well, that was the subject of one of the first songs written by Tinariwen guitarist, Ibrahim Ag Al-Habi, 63, 63. <laughs> Residir Juan Anakiman Abdallah al Husseini says there's never been real peace in the north of Mali from 1963 up to today. Songs like this form the foundation of Ishumar music. Mohamed Agoussad notes that before they went into exile in Libya, the founders of Tinariwen grew up in Kidal, longer center for Tuareg poetry. La musique de Tinariwen est une musique codée. Mohamed says Tinariwen's songs are coded. To explain one line would require a long commentary because they come from the greatest poets of Kidal, men and women. Mohamed says that Tinariwen's early songs were revolutionary, songs of revendication. Literally, that means they made demands. When you look at the lyrics of Tinariwen, it's not what I would call revendication, but it's politically, it's about awareness. So many of Tinariwen's songs begin immediately my friends, they're talking to their circle. My friends, wake up, be aware, what's happening to you? We're erring in the desert, we're thirsty, where are we going? Sometimes they got quite martial, there were sort of rallying cries. Some of Hassan's songs that date from the 1980s are kind of, we are fearless, we don't fear death. We will be like eagles flying over the mountains. Here's an example. This one says, death is here. She's counting the days. Let the blood boil if it's really in your veins. At the break of dawn, take your weapons and take to the hilltops. Yeah. 
The great tragedy of the 2012 rebellion is that its Tuareg leaders were ultimately outmaneuvered by Islamic jihadists who had a very different agenda to impose Sharia law. El Hajj Jitay remained in Timbuktu throughout the occupation, blogging about events there day by day. If you come in a city, you want to impose new ideology, new education of religion. The first thing you got to do is to destroy that cultural heritage because inside ancient manuscript, Islamic religion is well explained. My own family were obliged to hide its own manuscript by digging the sand, putting manuscript in old pottery in order to hide them. Hundreds of thousands fled the occupation. At first, many went south to Bamako. But at the time, the city was enduring its own crisis, a military coup d'etat. Many Malians initially blamed the Tuareg for all of this. In 2012, when the problem started, this big day of manifestation against the Tuareg. The whole population went out, chased the Tuareg, broke their house, destroyed everything that belonged to them, their shops, and some people get injured. And this day, many tourists get out of Bamako. Some of them going to Algeria, Burkina Faso, uh, Mauritania. They started to build the pharmacy Tuareg, the maison Tuareg in Kati, and then we received emails and messages everywhere. We will attack you. Fadimata of Tartit recalls this violence. A major pharmacy in Kati burned, along with Tuareg homes. He mailed threats. Fortunately, the anti-Tuareg backlash did not last long. By all accounts, things are much better for the Tuareg in Bamako now. But feelings linger. Mohamed Hamalek. Yesterday afternoon, I take a taxi with a taxi driver from Gao. He's going to drop a lady somewhere and then he cannot drive her on this road. This side, if I take it, the Polish people will take me. She tell him, you guys from the north, you are all rebels, you don't like us. Fadimata told us that the members of Tartit have been dispersed since the crisis. Some in Mauritania, some in Burkina Faso, Belgium, France, one is in Timbuktu. But the four principal women live in Bamako and the group can come together for shows. We were lucky enough to record one of them when the Caravan for Peace played at the 2016 festival on the Niger in Ségou. 
The caravan is a multi-ethnic collective of groups that carries on the tradition of the festival in the desert. Fadimata says this is the first time Tartit has ever been invited to the Segu Festival. And that's thanks to the group's long association with the festival in the desert. But as for other gigs in Mali, there's nothing. We're not invited. Fadimata believes in a unified Mali, but she says there is no solidarity. One night, we dropped in at the Tumast Tuareg Cultural Center to hear a young Tuareg band, Akal Oha, or Communal Land. The group has driven 45 kilometers to sing their songs of peace, unity, and reconciliation. But as you can hear, they attracted only a handful of supporters. No, not easy at all being a Tuareg musician in Bamako. But that was true long before the crisis. Even then, Tuareg music was just beginning to break through in the south. At the Festival sur le Niger in Bamako, we were encouraged to see young Bambara fans responding enthusiastically to music from the north. Here's the Tuareg band Amanar. Amanar refers to a cluster of stars that appears in the sky late at night. That's when this young group used to hold its rehearsals back in Kidal. Amanar founder Ahmed Akkaidi says his idea was to train young musicians and create a new generation of Ishumar music. If Tinariwen is the school, these are the students playing a more energized stake on Ishuma. Tuareg Rock from Amanar, performing live at the Festival sur le Niger in Ségou. The occupation of northern Mali ended in 2013, when French military forces drove the jihadists out of Timbuktu, Gao and Kidal. Many fled to the mountains, and the region remains insecure. But the worst had passed, and gradually people began to return. Here's Mohamed Hamalek, a resident of Timbuktu. My first time I went back to Timbuktu after the liberations from the ferry, 
to my house is like 20 kilometers. I was just crying because the whole town was destroyed and almost nobody. The whole population ran away. La première fois que je suis retourné, je crois que je suis dans une autre ville qui n'est pas Tombouctou. Haïra Arbi was away from Timbuktu during the rebellion. She returned shortly after the French assault. She says, I could not believe this was Timbuktu. I spent the whole four days crying. There was no electricity, houses were destroyed and empty. There was no singing anywhere. It was like a ghost town. Since then, things have improved. In 2014, Haira joined Tartit for the first public concert in Timbuktu since the occupation. The moment is movingly captured in a wonderful documentary about northern musicians during the crisis. It's called They Will Have to Kill Us First. And by the way, the title comes from Haira herself, her message to the jihadists. <laughs> In 2016, in our home in exile in Bamako, Haira sings us a new song. It urges the Malian army to show resolve in defending Timbuktu and calls on the world to help because, she says, these enemies will not rest. You know, before the crisis, Haira was the queen of Timbuktu's music scene. She's determined to move back there and resume her career. But sadly, normality in the north of Mali is still a dream. Rasmussen says the lyric content of Tuareg guitar music has changed with the times. Originally it was protest music, you know, with the exiles and migrants, but I've collected much of this in the field because one of my interests is in verbal art performance, and many of the verses later promoted peace and reconciliation. <laughs> Fadimata of Tartit agrees, especially since the occupation of the north. Even Tinariwen, revolutionaries in the past, now sing about unity and healing the division among the Tuareg. Even we in Tartit are changing. We perform traditional music, but now we are composing new songs about lack of education, the lack of health care, and the need for unity. The Tuareg people are completely divided. Tartit's new songs call on northern communities to help themselves, rather than waiting for others to step in. Like our friend Haira, Fadimata has written more songs than she can even remember. But the world has not heard them, because she says, we have no way to record them. We 
do have new music from a Tuareg band that split off from Tartit a few years back. Here's a track from the 2016 release by Imar Han of Timbuktu. <laughs> New music from Imarhan. Mohamed Ag Osad of the Tumast Center in Bamako also hears new messages in today's Tuareg music, especially from younger groups like Imarhan, Tamiklest, Terakaft, and Amanar. Tous les musiciens, les jeunesses, ne chantent plus des musiques revendicatrices. Ils chantent la musique d'amour, ils chantent la musique de la cohésion sociale. Mohamed says these young musicians are singing about love, peace, and social integration. Amanar's 2016 CD, Tumastin, is a call for unity among Tuareg factions. If you don't have harmony within a family, you can't uplift a nation. Ahmed of Amanar says their music is not so much an evolution as an expression of generational change. In the past, Ishumar music was there to encourage young Tuareg to take up arms and fight for their own country, Azawad. Today, Tuareg youth need positive poetry talking about education and unity. This is an encouraging trend after a dark passage in modern Malian history. The question I always ask myself is why was the conflict of 2012 not more violent? A few thousand died during the fighting in Mali in 2012 and early 2013, but nothing like the numbers killed in recent conflicts in Congo, Liberia, Sudan, Somalia. Andy Morgan thinks one factor is the griots who keep citizens mindful of history. Another is a uniquely Malian tradition called Sanankuya, a custom that allows families, clans, and ethnic groups with historical grievances to openly insult each other. It's a kind of tension release. Still, given the stakes in the Malian north, this old Mali hand still wonders. Why wasn't it more violent? Why weren't they just ripping each other apart? And I think that's to do with Sanankuya. It's certainly to do with the griots. The griots are diplomats, masters of the word. You need to control your words in order to relate, to get what you want. 
Well, we certainly hope that wise words will prevail among the Tuareg and all the other factions now negotiating a new peace in the north of Mali. Worldwide comes from the National Endowment for the Humanities, the National Endowment for the Arts, which believes a great nation deserves great art, and PRI, Public Radio International affiliate stations around the U.S. And thank you for supporting your public radio station. Thanks to Susan Rasmussen, Andy Morgan, Gregory Mann, and all the artists and cultural activists we met in Mali for their help with this program. Visit afropop.org to hear the program again, read interview transcripts, and learn much more about Tuareg music and culture. You can also find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at AfropopWW. My Afropop partner is Sean Barlow. Sean produces our program for World Music Productions. Research and production for this program by Banning Air with help from Sean Barlow. And join us next week for another edition of Afropop Worldwide. Our chief audio engineer and co-producer is Michael Jones. Additional engineering by Mike Kaplan and Stephanie Lebeau. Benning Air and C.C. Smith edit our website, afropop.org. Our director of new media is Akornefa Achier. And I'm Georges Collinet. <laughs> Public Radio International.